Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Sometimes you see articles about where the hot new jobs are going to be in 10 years, which can be helpful if you want to switch careers or advise young people on where to look for opportunity. Well, we're about to focus on a sector of the economy that has just been on fire, not for a year or two or even 10, but for decades. Why is it that this old working class, which is gone now, numerically, almost completely, still hangs so heavily everywhere, it's still so present in our national culture, in debates about politics and about you know, the future of work and the economy, and the new one, which is everywhere, is so invisible. Gabriel Winant is an assistant professor of history at the University of Chicago, and he started to look at how jobs are shifting in this country. What he found was startling. Because we're used to hearing, especially from political types, about how to bring factory jobs back to America, how to revitalize manufacturing, which has largely disappeared. But, he says, what we're not used to hearing is where jobs in America are abundant. And that place is healthcare. Jobs like nurse and nursing assistant, EKG tech, home health aid, these are jobs that have been growing like gangbusters. And then, you know, also a huge part of this process that's necessary for this, the care economy to work, right, are the people who clean the rooms and change the sheets and wash the sheets and, you know, make the food and serve the food. And, you know, we may not recognize that as care work from its sort of technical specifications, but it's actually a very important part of it. So take the bottom 20 percent of jobs in America, the ones with the lowest wages. In the 1980s, more than half the growth in those jobs came from just the care economy. In the 1990s, more than 60% of the job growth came from the care economy. And you might think, oh gosh, well, after decades of those jobs having explosive growth, things probably started slowing down, right? Well, that's the mind-bending part. In the 2000s, more than 70% of job growth for that bottom strata of jobs, again, came from the care economy. Instead of things slowing down, they were speeding up which presented Winant with a few puzzles. First, where were all these jobs coming from? Second, you'd think that states with lots and lots of retirees, like Florida and Arizona, they would have the highest percentage of people working in care, but they don't. Why not? Well, here's a clue. Florida isn't old for the same reason that Pittsburgh is old. If that sounds like a riddle that you're gonna need to sit with, don't worry, we'll explain it. Finally, there's that puzzle of invisibility. How could such explosive growth happen under the radar? And how in the world could it just keep chugging along decade after decade after decade? Well, one place to start if you're trying to answer that question is with the largest employer in Pennsylvania. Who is it? It's the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, UPMC which, in kind of a brilliant example of the literal and the figurative colliding, took over the high-profile U.S. Steel Tower. It's a hospital chain, uh, as well as running various subsidiary entities. And if you go to Pittsburgh, you can see the tallest building on the skyline says UPMC on it. Its ads are everywhere. It's very present. UPMC has around about 90,000 employees. In 2013, though, the medical center said something that may tell us a lot about how American jobs are changing. They filed papers in court claiming they had no employees whatsoever. 
Now, they were doing this in a way sort of similar to and recognizable from Uber and similar companies, right? Saying that there is a legal distinction. In this case, they were saying our hospitals are independent from the, you know, the mothership. And so we're not really responsible for them. But what's significant here is that it tells us something about how this huge category of workers, healthcare workers, they're the biggest category in the entire labor market nationwide now, healthcare and social assistance, how invisible they are. Wynant is the author of the forthcoming book, The Next Shift, The Fall of Industry and the Rise of Healthcare in Rust Belt America. And he argues that an epic transformation has been going on, all over America, really, but particularly in the Northeast and Midwest. Healthcare has started to eat everything, mostly without us noticing. Exhibit A, Pittsburgh. So Pittsburgh is Steel City, right? We all, it's the one thing we all know about it. The football team is the Steelers. The beer is Iron City, on and on like this. Uh, it was one of the great industrial cities of the late 19th and early 20th century. At the height of manufacturing in Pittsburgh, uh, around the time of the Korean War, about 50% of all employed people, roughly, were employed in manufacturing and blue-collar work. In the mid-20th century, many of those workers watched as Harry Truman tried to get universal health care passed. And he was backed by a lot of the big industrial unions, like the United Steelworkers and the United Auto Workers, which were very, very powerful at this time. And people really thought it was going to happen. Then, for a variety of reasons, it didn't work politically. And organizations like the United Steelworkers said, okay, you know what, if we can't win this, we have to win a health coverage plan in the private sector for our own members. And that really is where health insurance as we know it comes from. It has origins before that technically, but the idea that millions and millions of people have health insurance through their jobs has to do with that decision by organized labor to kind of call it off on the fight for a national health care plan, thinking that they wouldn't be able to win it, and to pursue security for their members and their members' families through the private sector. All of a sudden, Wynant says, the market for private health care mushroomed. People who had never had health care before, they now did. And every few years, when a new union contract was negotiated, health care packages often got better and better. Then, manufacturing and heavy industry in the U.S. started to fall apart. We all had to know this story somewhat. Some automation, some trade competition, one way or another. Steel mills are shedding workers gradually over the 60s and 70s and then really rapidly at the end of the 70s and in the 80s. And if you think about the population that that leaves behind, that process, right, what happens is young people realize they're never going to get a job in that industry, especially young men, because those are jobs for men mainly. And so they start to pick up stakes and leave town. And places like Pittsburgh and Detroit lose tons and tons of population. Pittsburgh is still less than half the size it was in 1950. Who's left is the old people with good insurance and an increasingly impoverished population now that they don't have these jobs. This is not a narrative that often gets spoken about by high-profile people. Governors and mayors like to talk about the young creatives who have converted old mill buildings into startup offices. But those are tiny numbers. And as inequality rises, in part because the jobs with great benefits have fallen away in favor of low-paid health care jobs, the demand for health care will only get more intense. Why? Well, one reason, says Gabriel Wynant, is that the disappearance of good jobs, that in itself makes people less well. People get sicker. That's one big piece of it. That's definitely true. And so there's a kind of biological part of it. But there's also the fact that 
you know, for all that Medicaid is stingy and often discriminates against poor people and so on, and that, you know, is always being cut back by policymakers, it's still actually one of the more secure forms of benefits for poor people in this country compared to food stamps and income support and things like that. Actually, if you just think of all kinds of social welfare benefits as, you know, some kind of income for a second, people can get more out of Medicaid than they can out of a lot of other equivalents. Okay. So to the extent that they can get some of their social needs met by Medicaid, it makes sense for people to do that. And the biggest example of that is long-term care. Medicaid pays for two-thirds of long-term care in this country, which is nursing homes and also home care. And, you know, to qualify for Medicaid, you have to meet the means test. You have to be below a certain income and asset level. And so what we're seeing with that, that's the most stark example of this phenomenon in which people pushed below a certain level economically, then are able to use this part of the welfare state built up 50 years ago to get themselves fed and taken care of and housed. Okay, so you've got, as people get poorer, strangely in some ways, they qualify more for Medicaid, which means they are entitled to some health care. Right. Right. Okay. And then you said people also get sicker. Can you explain that? Like, in what ways do they get sicker as inequality grows, like, thus thus necessitating more health care? Right. Well, there's a lot of different ways. It's not a single mechanism. There's a study by a couple of economists that was a study of Pennsylvania in particular that showed that in the immediate years after the wave of plant closures in the 80s, laid off people had enormously higher mortality rates than would be expected for, you know, their population. Hmm. And that effect, you know, it spiked up really rapidly in the immediate aftermath and then, you know, diminished gradually over the rest of their life courses, basically. So what are we looking at when we see something like that? There are a bunch of health effects that we can basically group under something like stress, right? People lose their jobs and they're dependent on their jobs for their, their survival, as we all are in this, or most of us are in this country. And moreover, everyone has lost their jobs all at the same time. And mm. so there's no, you know, there's nowhere you can go to get a new right, one in a straightforward way. Right. And your community way. is kind of falling apart. And your community is falling apart. Exactly. That can have a really serious effect on your mental health. You know, it mm. drives up suicide rates and depression mm. rates. It drives up alcoholism and domestic violence. And, you know, it seems to just cause things like heart attacks and okay. um, strokes and this kind of thing. Um you know, there are also a whole bunch of sort of secondary effects, right? As people are poorer, they don't eat as well. They become more mm-hmm. housing insecure. I mean, there's mm-hmm. all kinds of mechanisms by which this happens. Uh, and this isn't to say that, you know, everyone who lost their job becomes an alcoholic, right? We right. shouldn't be crude about it. But we can see that there is a kind of disaggregated system of effects that work their way out on people's bodies. And, you know, if you talk to or read stories from Pittsburgh in 1983 or any city like this in this time, uh, everyone talks about, you know, their memories of, you know, suddenly all these people dropping dead from heart attacks. Hmm. And, you know, I think there's good social scientific evidence for this, but we should also take seriously that people remember it that way. Okay. Um, one of the phenomena that we've kind of been talking about, but that is really striking when you look at the numbers is how much this is a story uh, that is largely about the Northeast and the Midwest. It's especially... Uh, noticeable there. And you list the top 25 urbanized counties in the U.S. in terms of the share of the workforce that's in healthcare and that's in social assistance. 
in the top 25, New York State alone shows up seven times. So they are like big deal, you know, uh, figuring into this list. Uh, Pennsylvania shows up twice, though I I notice that the two counties that show up are the ones that have Pittsburgh and Philadelphia, so where a lot of the people are. Um, Massachusetts shows up four times. One thing I wondered is, where's California? Where's Florida? Florida actually does show up once at the very, very bottom, but isn't Florida where a lot of retirees are? Wouldn't healthcare be the biggest industry? I mean, just explain to me, like, where are the California, Texas, Florida, some of the states with the largest populations? Yeah, well, this kind of blew my mind. You know, I I first started thinking about this in part. I'm from Philadelphia. Okay. And I remember, you know, you see all over Pennsylvania, and you have for as long as I can remember, ads everywhere for jobs working in nursing homes and things like that. Uh, you know, just sandwich boards stuck in the, by the side of the sidewalk, just all over the place, all over the whole state. Um and when I really kind of dug in and started trying to figure out what does this actually look like around the whole country, the thing that was really striking was that there's a relationship to age, as you're suggesting. And Pennsylvania is, is one of the older states in the country and has been for a long time. And in particular, Allegheny County, where Pittsburgh is, for a while there was the, the second oldest uh, major urban county in the country wow, okay. after Broward and Florida. Okay. But you're right. It doesn't track exactly onto age, right? The Florida counties, Arizona counties that you would expect to be high on the list are not. And right. that's because there's an interaction between aging and economic trauma. Okay. And people who are retiring to Arizona or retiring to Florida, you know, generally they are not people who have lost their livelihoods. So, okay, so it's not like there aren't a bunch of, it's not like Florida doesn't have many older people, just as Pittsburgh has many older people, but maybe the people are not as in good health in in some of these northeastern and midwestern places. Right. And again, I think it's important to remember that we're talking about a sort of system yes. of effects right here. So, you know, it's not that every old person sure. uses a ton of health care. Right. right. These are averages. And if you, if you start to think about what is producing this population level effect, Aging on its own doesn't seem to be enough to do it. You know, it's not that there's not a healthcare system in Florida or in Arizona. Right. Of course there is. Uh, but aging on its own doesn't seem to be enough to do it. There's a particular pattern of aging that industrial places in the Northeast and Midwest went through. They got old before a lot of the country did, and they did through this process of downward economic spiral. And it's that that left behind this huge healthcare institutions. So can you talk a little bit about we talked about how this this care economy is just like has grown like gangbusters, 80s, 90s, 2000s, like nothing can stop this thing. Who are the people who are taking these jobs, if you can paint a little bit of a picture? Yeah. Well, in Pittsburgh, uh, to a very significant degree, uh, first of all, it's overwhelmingly women everywhere. Okay. Uh, I mean, I think, you know, we sometimes tell ourselves that, you know, over time, the way that this industry has been gendered will naturally sort of even out. But it remained overwhelmingly women's work. And part of the downward pressure on working conditions, on wages, has to do with how women's work has always been made less secure by regulation. So until the 1970s, hospital workers weren't even eligible to unionize, for example, um, under federal law. To a significant degree, also, it tends to be workers of color. It varies by where you are in terms of the actual kind of racial and ethnic composition of that workforce. So in Pittsburgh, 
as African-Americans to a very significant degree in the lower strata of this workforce. In other places, you'll find more immigrants. Pittsburgh doesn't really attract a lot of immigrants. Um, But, you know, there came a moment in the 70s and 80s as the ability of families and communities to subsist the way that they had been on manufacturing work, as that fell apart, there came a moment when in a place like Pittsburgh, thousands and across the country, millions of women whose mothers had been housewives for most of their lives realized that they would not do the same thing. Either they had an opportunity to not do the same thing, they were compelled not to do the same thing, some combination of those feelings, um, but that they were going to need to bring in some income. Okay. And, you know, uh, basically thousands of women kind of looked around and thought, okay, his, his job at the factory is not going to be able to deliver what we need. What can I do? And the answer that they came to, more than any other, was get a job in the healthcare industry. Uh, partly because it was the one thing that was growing, because it was, in fact, feeding off of the decline all around it, as I was discussing earlier, but also because there was a lot in the way that uh, women's lives were organized and experienced in the 50s and 60s that made it seem natural, mm-hmm. right? Women often had stories about, I used to volunteer at this hospital, so I thought I would come get a job right. here when I needed work. Um, all kinds of things like that, that have to do with, again, how work that is associated with women, that is feminized, uh, is historically devalued to the point that women were kind of already expected to do it, even for free, mm-hmm. right? Um, and then when it came time to really try to get some money, they would just try to do more of it enough to, you know, get some income. We were talking about this transition. So you've got like 50s, 60s, people think of it, you know, these these lunchbox men, uh, you know, going to the factory and churning out whatever it is, cars or doing steel stuff in Pittsburgh, wherever, um, depending on the city that they're in, but they're in the manufacturing economy. And then at mostly white men, then there's a decline of that. And, and you're talking about in much more recent years, this just huge growth of women, often women of color in uh, care. Can I just ask, where did the white men go? I mean, yeah, that story makes it seem like, and the white men left. <laughs> I don't know. Where are they? Well, uh, I mean, to a significant degree, they did leave from oh, places okay. like Pittsburgh. Um, there is big out-migration from... I mean, Pittsburgh experiences more than almost any other major city, but a lot of the industrial cities see in particular men migrating out and especially white men to the south and southwest, to the Sun Belt, where there was economic growth happening. And that's a big part of why the population shrinks so much. So you actually get a couple of kind of age cohorts that are have a much more significant gender imbalance than is normal to see for a whole city. But, you know, other than that, they kind of spread out across the rest of the economy. There's no big concentration anymore. Um, you know, so some of them get jobs in hospitals. It's not only women. It's not only African-Americans who get hospital jobs. Some white men do, too, although, you know, in smaller numbers. A lot try when they lose their jobs, uh, you know, especially in the 80s when things really bottomed out in the early 80s. A lot tried to find work where they could put their skills to use, um, which makes sense. And it's what any of us do, right, when we're, when we're displaced. Sure. Uh, I, I spent a lot of time reading quite a sad kind of archival record, which was uh, the records from job banks that people, you know, people came in after they lost their jobs and filled out. It might have been a full resume or might have just been a kind of quick note. Here's who I am. Here's what I know Mm -hmm. how to do. And, you know, man after man after man comes in there 
and puts down this whole incredible array of mechanical skills that they've learned, you know, even, you know, beyond the immediate necessities of what they did in the steel mill. Um, you know, it's a quite impressive accumulation of what economists would call human capital, right, that went on in uh, the blue collar world of you know, steel making Pittsburgh. Right. And all of that skill is wasted because there's just no work in any of that. Um, you know, I think strikingly, uh, African-American men tended to understand that they would not get that they were quicker to understand that there was no chance that, they, you know, even if they knew how to weld or, you know, knew how to operate a crane, mm. uh, there was no way that they were going to get a job doing that now. And so another kind of second painful dimension of these kinds of records is you see African, you know, white men are still putting down, I know how to w operate a crane, you know, I'm, I, I know how to, you know, fix machinery, different things. And African-American men who likely have a lot of the same skills are writing, I can be a security guard, I can be a custodian, I can mm. be a janitor. So if the if the early cohort of people, the men um, who work in the steel mills and who work in the car factories, if they are unionized and and, you know, at least in the 50s and 60s, they negotiate in the 40s, they negotiate these great benefits for great health care and all sorts of other things. Um, why? When we get to the 80s, 90s, 2000s, when like the care economy that you identify as booming really takes the place in lots of ways of the of that old industrialized economy, why don't those people unionize? Because, I mean, not only do you still have unions of people like iron workers, but but I can even think of like what might have been once considered women's work, like public school teachers. They're unionized. Why aren't care workers unionized? Yeah, it's a great and very important question. I mean, first of all, I think it's key to say that many are trying. Um, there have been efforts uh, across the care economy to organize going back decades in some cases. Uh, and there are some successes. There are union hospitals, there are union nursing homes. There has been an on, go on and off effort at UPMC itself for nearly 10 years now, which has not met with a ton of success. And so the question that I think we have to ask is, why is it not working? Right. Or right. why has it not worked so far? Right. And, you know, I think there's a few parts to this. The first part is that employers have learned to uh, fight unions really effectively, and that's important to take seriously. Uh, UPMC was found by the federal government to have violated workers' rights to organize, but there's really only kind of a slap on the wrist for doing that. And so it's in their incentive to do that if they need to. The second point is that if we compare healthcare to education, which I think is a useful comparison that you made, uh, you know, if you think about a school, who works in a school, right? There's some custodians, there's, you know, some administrators, but there's basically a lot of teachers and then a few people around the margins. Right. In a hospital, on the other hand, you have a much more complicated occupational hierarchy, mm. right? From the people who are custodians and make the food and clean the sheets at the bottom, all the way up to the nurses or even potentially the doctors. Um, and, you know, with many, many steps in between. So there's not a kind of big central rank of people in the way that there is in a school That's and the, the way that there was in a factory. And moreover, in a hospital, that hierarchy is very likely also to be racialized. So in Pittsburgh, the people who are cleaning the sheets are probably going to be African-American. Uh, the people with more valued skills and, you know, higher up in the hierarchy are much more likely to be white. And that's another factor that makes it hard for them to kind of act, act together. Uh, and easier for the employer to use anti-union tactics and divide them from each other. But there's a final piece that I think is important to understand. That's a kind of structural dimension of it. 
healthcare, like a lot of service jobs, uh, you can't really automate it so easily, right? It's, uh, yeah. You would not be happy. You would not be happy if uh, you know you, you you were in the hospital or a loved one was in the hospital and a robot came in to take some stats right. um, or you know ask you some questions. And you know that kind of obvious thing is is it shows up in the statistics. It's not an industry, uh, as many service in- industries are not. That's characterized by uh, significant, steady productivity increase, which we think of as being a core feature of the capitalist economy. It has been historically. And you start to think about what that means. The way that manufacturing was able to reach those bargains with industrial workers depended on that dynamic of productivity increase so that workers and management could both kind of benefit together as the, as the rising tide went up, Right. If, if you don't have that kind of productivity increase, you're much more in a zero-sum conflict. And that incentivizes employers to fight harder and resist harder and makes it harder for workers to win. Okay, let's break here for a minute. We're going to come back for our final moments with Gabriel Winant, who's the author of The Next Shift, The Fall of Industry and the Rise of Healthcare in Rust Belt America. He's also a professor of history at the University of Chicago. If you want to know more about some of the statistics, some of the stories that we've discussed, you can head to our website. It's innovationhub.org. From GBH Radio and PRX, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. We know, largely, the story of manufacturing's decline in America and the disappearance of millions of often quite solid jobs. But less remarked upon have been the jobs that people have increasingly turned to. We don't talk about them. They often don't have anything like the security and protection and status that you know, their grandfathers had to be direct about what this transition is, right? It's a generational transition to a significant degree. Gabriel Winant has written about a sector of the economy that has grown by leaps and bounds. He's the author of The Next Shift, The Fall of Industry and the Rise of Healthcare in Rust Belt America. But though healthcare jobs are plentiful and they've grown enormously over the past few decades, and we're talking here about jobs like home health aid, nursing assistant, well, the money and the benefits that are attached to them are often paltry. These are not 17-year-olds, you know, doing a summer internship, right? This is people who are often parents, often single parents. Uh, you know, there's a lot of people who have second jobs. It's quite common, actually, to find people who work two different jobs in the healthcare industry. So you might be, uh, you know, a receptionist in a hospital clinic and also doing home care on the weekend or, you know, Working, a nurse, working as a nursing assistant in a nursing home and doing home care or working in two nursing homes. Winant, who's an assistant professor at the University of Chicago, says that as hospital chains get bigger and bigger to make sure that they can profit off their scale, it's been hard to squeeze more profit out of janitors or people who give you an EKG. So those salaries have mostly stayed low, even as the need for jobs and care has exploded. The low salaries, in turn, tend to drive demand for health care because our social safety net has a lot of holes. And when you fall to the bottom, 
healthcare is sometimes the only thing there to catch you. That isn't true everywhere. You know, the healthcare system here is has this kind of unique role because it's this public-private system in which you have all this public regulation and all this public money, but this private administration, largely private administration, what that has meant is that it's been able to kind of grow and absorb all of this need and demand generated by dislocation in the way we were talking about earlier, right? How people get poorer, they might be likely to go on Medicaid and thereby to wind up in the system, for example. In countries that had more well-rounded welfare states, there is an overall effect of the welfare state. Definitely, it gets bigger with deindustrialization, but it's not all concentrated and jammed into the healthcare system in the way that it was here, right? It's spread out more across different kinds of services, different kinds of social supports. So, I mean, one of the strange things for you as you've, you know, I mean, you've done this research for years looking at um, the enormous growth of the care economy. And now, you know, here we are in this pandemic. And I mean, in some ways, the epicenter of focus has been hospitals. It's been nursing homes. I mean, this has really been a place where a spotlight has shown in the last year or so that just it, it's not usually like that. What have you thought as you've seen what you've seen like on TV and you've um, thought about the research you do and the, and the statistics you know? Well, you know, first of all, my, my, my immediate thought is just pain at the dysfunction of our system yeah. and the cruelty that it leads to. For patients, obviously, and, you know, we have plenty of stories of people, you know, uninsured people scared about getting COVID treatment and all kinds of things. And also for workers, you know, who are put in these impossible situations, you know, management, not providing PPE when needed, deceiving people about who has COVID or doesn't and all kinds of things. But, you know, this is rooted in the deep fragmentation and dysfunction of our healthcare system. I was just reading a story, I think yesterday, talking about how slow the vaccine rollout yes. has been and comparing it to the slow testing yeah. rollout in the spring and saying, it's the same thing again. Mm. And in both cases, what's happened is no one is responsible, right? No one wants it to be their job and has the resources for it to be their job to be in charge of this. So the federal government is saying this is up to the states. The states are saying Department of Health can't handle this. It's up to the private providers. The private providers are saying we can't coordinate it. And, you know, at each level, they would say, if you want us to do this, you have to give us the resources right. for it. And, you know, that that fragmentation of responsibility is the same thing that has allowed the healthcare system both to grow so much and to absorb so much of our economy right. and also that makes it so dysfunctional. You know, also for the workers, I found it so ironic and, you know, again, painful to see the term essential workers kind of come to the surface, to see these banners on bridges. Yeah. And, you know, yeah, I, hear, yeah. I hear stories from nurses I know about, you know, administration won't give us hazard pay, but they got us all, you know, cupcakes and this kind of thing. Um, really patronizing stuff like that. And that's, you know, I think we were in a really strange paradox where we're saying with every breath, thank you so much. We love you. You're so essential. But we're not acting like we mean it. Um, right, we're not, as a society, we're not putting the resources in place and paying the respect due to the people who are keeping us alive collectively. So so where does all this go? I mean, let me just return to some of the statistics that, that I mentioned at the beginning. 
In the 1980s, when you look at the bottom 20% of jobs in this country, half the growth came from the care economy. In the 1990s, it wasn't 50% of the job growth, it was 60%. In the 2000s, it wasn't 60%, it was 70%. Um, are we at an end? Does it keep on going like this? You know, I think that the answer basically is that it is likely to keep going. Um, really? Because, you know, the core dynamic, right, is there's a gradual economy-wide, and this is true again in European economies too, transfer of labor from high productivity lines of work to low productivity lines of work. But that structural thing is happening in a big way. And, you know, it's happening around the world. And our institutions are, for different reasons, channeling that in particular into the healthcare industry. But that larger dynamic is very hard to turn around. And we don't necessarily even exactly need to or want to, but we should think about how to make it less powerful of a force for social inequality. Mm. And, you know, to my mind, the question of the privatization and fragmentation of our healthcare system and the low earnings of so many service workers are really deeply tied up with each other. And if we were able to actually resolve that those kind of dysfunctions and fragmentation in our healthcare system and bring it more of it into the public sector, as is common in many other countries, we would also have a lever to lift the wages and improve the working conditions of this new workforce of millions of people. Do you see any long-term effects from um, a pandemic on this on this sort of whole sector of the American economy? I mean, we're talking about a pandemic that it seems like at the very least we're talking about a year and a half of major crisis and maybe much longer. Um, I mean, I'm just thinking about months and months of vaccine rollout ahead of us, and we've already been through almost a year. You almost can't. A year and a half seems like the the, uh, the optimistic, uh, uh, you know, estimate here. Does that change anything at all, or or no? Well, I think it's hard to say for sure. But what I think is going to be different on the other side of this is that a lot of people who work in healthcare institutions are going to be a lot less likely to trust the people who run those institutions, and for good good reason, as well as you know higher level administrators in government and so on. But I think healthcare workers, ones I know, feel very intensely betrayed by how they've been treated by the people they work for. And, you know, the truth is, I think that betrayal began before the pandemic, right? And it began in this sort of dynamic of relying on these people to keep our society alive and going while treating them so disposably. But that contradiction between calling people essential and depending on them has gotten much more intense. And, you know, anyone who works in the industry can feel it and see it for themselves. And I hope that, that that will cause people to assert themselves and assert their rights collectively, more forcefully, and to, you know, muster the courage that they need collectively to actually demand change from the inside of the healthcare system, where it's going to have to come from. Gabriel Winant is a professor of U.S. history at the University of Chicago. He's the author of the upcoming book, The Next Shift, The Fall of Industry and the Rise of Healthcare in Rust Belt America. Gabriel, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me.
From PRX and GBH, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub.